Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Every single one of you looks like your parents. You can't help it. Some of you more than others, but you all do look like your parents, look or looked. That's something that you become so accustomed to, just living life in this world, that you lose any sense of amazement about it. But I'd like to step back for just a second and think about it enough to be amazed by that fact again. You are, physically speaking, the product of 46 chromosomes full of genetic information. And you got 23 of those from your mother, and you got 23 of those from your father, with some exceptions, but generally speaking, that's who you are. The likeness isn't perfect, but it is real for every person, no exception. Now, I hope you realize that it didn't have to be this way. God, the Almighty Maker, when He first fashioned mankind, did so ex nihilo. That means out of nothing. It's another way of saying that God, as an artist, when He created all things, did it on an entirely blank canvas. There were no constraints for Him. So He could have made mankind any way He wanted. So He freely and under no compulsion decided that after Adam and Eve... Every human being, up to and including ourselves in this room, would look like our parents. <laughs> you take it for granted, but it's not for granted. He decided that. He made that choice. It's just not amazing to us because we're used to it. But we shouldn't think of this as arbitrary or meaningless as a decision on God's part. There was a reason that God decided that you would look like your parents. It's a lot like how the Old Testament, as you read it, you realize that God designed the story of the Old Testament to give you physical, visible pictures of spiritual realities today. It's part of what the Old Testament does. God has done more than that. In creation itself, in the way the world works, in the way your body's designed, in physics, in chemistry, and everything else, God designed it to be filled with pictures of spiritual realities. And so what does it mean spiritually that God intentionally, purposely designed that you would look like your parents? Here is one of the things that God meant, and John will tell us today. Spiritually, if you really are a child of God, you will look like God. Not physically, then we'd be part of some odd cult. It's not what we're saying. Spiritually, we are talking about something more fundamental than physically here. We're talking about a shadow, human chromosomes and you looking like your parent, that is being cast by something substantial. And it is God creating man in his likeness, then redeeming mankind. And if you are redeemed, if you are born again, born of God, you will look like God. But of course, you know that because you know how human birth works. You see how that prepared you for that? You know that children look like their human parents. So you should know, almost automatically, that children of God should in some way look like their heavenly father. 
So if here is a little girl with red hair just like her mother, over here spiritually, here is a Christian born anew of the Spirit of God who loves in the way that God loves. See the family resemblance? Family resemblance. Over here is a boy who has his father's blue eyes. And over here is a Christian born again in the family of God whose highest aim and ambition in life is for God to be glorified because that's his father's highest aim and ambition in life. Family resemblance, family resemblance. It's one of the major reasons God made chromosomes to begin with was so that you would know that children of God resemble their parent, the father. God is light, so the Christian is light. It's family resemblance. And the family resemblance is not perfect yet. And there are many ways in which even as a child of God, you never will resemble God. There are some things unique to God, of course. But there are other ways that you must, you will resemble God. It's the way that he designed it. We could even stretch the analogy a little bit like John will also do and say it's not just that children by nature look like their parents, but assuming the child grows up with their parents also by nurture, they will come to imitate their parents. And if you have children, you're aware that you see sometimes your own mannerisms, your own behaviors, your own phraseology. You see it in your children. They pick it up. It's scary sometimes how they pick that up from you. That too is by God's design. If you have a teenager and you watch them growing up and they talk the way you talk, <laughs> either very quickly or maybe thoughtfully and carefully, that's just how you talk. The child imitates the parent. All of this is to pre prepare you for 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, because you already know that on a human level, on a physical level, Children by nature and nurture imitate their parents. It's what you expect to see. It happens. So when you move into the spiritual realm, shouldn't the children of God look like their father? Yes. Obviously, yes. And that's exactly what John is going to tell us today. He began this in verse 29 of chapter 2, which is what we read last week, the very last verse that we read, where he talked about those who are born of God will be righteous the way that God's righteous. And that leads us into these verses, which just explain that comparison or family resemblance. So let's look at it here, 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Hopefully, just in reading those verses, you can see the comparison being made. We are children of God. 
So we are this way as he is this way. We are this way as he. We are righteous as he's righteous last week. We are pure because he's pure. It is a family resemblance. That is what John is basing his argument on here. Of course, Jesus Christ is the Son of the Father in the primary, ultimate sense and always has been. But amazingly, by His work on the cross and His resurrection, He is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. That's redemption. He has brought us into the family of God. And therefore, we are children. And like Jesus, in many ways, we will look like our Father. We could leave now because that is the whole point of these verses, but there's more in them. So what we're going to do now is consider these verses. Mainly we're interested in this question of likeness to God, but John actually begins by pointing us at God's love, and since those alliterate anyways, we might as well separate our sermon into those two points. First, let's consider God's love that makes us children because that's what we're commanded to do here. And then as a consequence of that, becoming God's children, let's consider the likeness that will be there, that is there and will increase all the way to the end if you are a child of God. So begin with me by looking at God's love in making us children. This is right in verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. There may be a temptation to skip over that and move right into this question of likeness that is most of these verses focusing upon that, but we can't because of the very first word in your text. It is a command. You have to do it. And what is the first command in these verses? See. You say, well, that's easy because you've lived your life, if God has granted you to have sight, you've lived your life seeing all the time. Literally, all you have to do is open your eyelids and you're doing it. So you say, okay, where do I have to look? Well, it's something a little more than that. What we're talking about in this command to see is not using the eyes that are in your head. But again, as a picture of something greater, we are talking about what Paul said in his prayer for the Ephesians, that the eyes of their heart might be enlightened. You don't just have eyes in your head, you have eyes in your heart. It is just a way of talking about faith. And faith perceives what is invisible in the same way that your eyes in your head perceive what's visible. The command here is not for the eyes in your head, it is for the eyes in your heart. It is really believe, contemplate with faith, and therefore that's what we have to do this morning. Don't just listen to the words I'm saying, don't just read the ink on the page, contemplate it with faith, believing that it's true. So that's the command, see. And what is it that we're commanded to contemplate with faith? See what kind of love the Father has given to us. You can't see this in the English, but that word, what kind, it's one word in the Greek, and it always expresses amazement. It's not like, be a scientist and decide in what genus and species this falls under, this kind of love. It's not like that. It's not like, be a philosopher and decide under what category this should fit. It's not like that. It's like, be a little child 
tomorrow night, seeing fireworks in the sky for the first time, what kind of love the Father has given to us. That is what you're required, but it's a wonderful requirement. That is what you're required in these few minutes, at least, and the rest of your life, to contemplate with faith. Just what kind of love the Father has given to us. Don't take it for granted. Think about it until it amazes you. That's what we're called to do right now. You say, well, what kind of love is it? Thankfully, he answers that immediately after the comma. What kind of love? That we should be called children of God. So what does that mean? Now, if we're just thinking biblically, there's more than one sense here. There is a sense in which every human on earth is a child of God. Sometimes people like to talk about all of us being the children of God, and there is a sense in which that's true. I say that because Paul, if you remember in Acts 17, when he was speaking to the Greeks who were not believers, he said, one of your own poets has said that we are God's offspring, meaning children. And Paul agreed with it. He said, well, being God's offspring, we shouldn't think God's an idol, right? Because we're not made of metal. So Paul allows to these unbelieving Greeks, that there is a sense in which all human beings are God's children. And the sense in which we're all God's children is God created all of us and God created all of us in his likeness. Family resemblance? So there's a sense in which every human being bearing the image of God is like a child of God. But that is not the sense in which John is using this term, children of God. He doesn't mean everybody's a child of God, just recognize that. Instead, he's talking about a sense above that sense. Because more often, the Bible, when it speaks of children of God, is speaking of those who are believers. Those who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ and experienced what Jesus called a second or a new birth. If there's a new birth, you're born, you're a child. Who causes you to be born? God. Therefore, to be a child of God, you're reborn, you're a child of God. Referring, in this sense, only to believers. So if you're in this room and you have trusted in Jesus Christ in truth, you are a child of God in this special sense. That's what he's talking about. It's accomplished by the Holy Spirit. We see this at the beginning of John's gospel. Here's the best explanation of it. He said, but to all who did receive Christ, did you receive him? Who believed in his name. Do you believe in his name? All right, then this is you. God gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. So it's not physically. You were born of God. So what you're commanded to think about with faith this morning is the adopting love of God. It was the late J.I. Packer, theologian who went to be with the Lord not long ago, who famously wrote in Knowing God on his chapter on adoption, our first point about adoption is that it is the highest privilege that the gospel offers higher even than justification. And we love justification. 
It means that when you trust in Jesus, God reckons the very righteousness of Jesus Christ to be yours. That's how we're innocent before God. That's how we have our guilt cleared away. It's justification. It's what we love and ought to go on loving. And yet Packer's claim is also true. He says, adoption is a higher privilege, not more important because you can't be adopted if you're not justified, but it is a higher privilege. Imagine if God were to justify you, clear you of your record of guilt, and you'd feel such an immense relief, but he kept you at a distance. He didn't want you with him. So you go over there for eternity by yourself and don't come to me. Imagine if God justified you but did not adopt you into his family. And you can see why adoption is a higher privilege. You need justification for this. But adoption, it is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, that we would be called the children of God. See what kind of love that this would be true of us, to be the children of God. And he adds there, and so we are. All of us are born orphans in this world, spiritually orphaned because of our fall into sin, cut off from the life of God, distant, alien, distant from Him. And yet God through Jesus Christ, this is the kind of love He has for us in giving His own Son, wants to bring us to Himself. He doesn't just want to do good to you. This is a mistake many times made in American Christianity. That we assume, well, God is a good God and He wants to do many good things for us, like heal us and give us money and fix the problems that we have. Well, there are many times when God does that, but that's not the main thing God wants for your life. The main thing God wants for your life is a million times better than all the money in the world, than healing every disease that you have. What God most wants, this is His love, not just to pour good on you and send you away. God's love is of this kind. Think about it. That the main thing God wants to do is take you from over there and bring you over here. To see Him, to be with Him, to be cared for by Him, to be embraced by Him, to be carried through the greatest trials you experience in this life, that's better than if the trials were never there. See what kind of love the Father's given to you. Many times you go through life and experience its many trials, and that's when you're tempted to question the love of God as a father. Because you think, I as a father would never allow these kinds of hardships into my child's life. And when the cancer diagnosis comes in, you think, God is in control. How can he be a good father and allow that? He can heal it, and he's not doing it. But see what kind of love. It doesn't say, see what kind of love the Father's given to us, that you'll never get cancer. That is a kind of love, but not a what kind of love. It doesn't say, see what kind of love the Father's given to you, that you'll never have financial problems anymore. It doesn't say that. It says, see what kind of love the Father's given to you. And when you look up like a child at the fireworks in the sky, it's He wants you to be His child here in His bosom, to enter into this love that stretches back into a past eternity of the Father God for the Son God loving each other, God the Son, God the Father, and the Spirit as a trinity, 
And he wants to bring you into that sort of love that you may experience it forever. That's what kind of love God has. And this week, you thought God didn't even want to see you because <laughs> you're so sinful and you've done so much wrong. You've made so many mistakes. You've sinned, your slime, your dirt, pick your metaphor, whatever. And you thought that God didn't want to see you. But this says, no, no, no. That's when you look with the eyes of your head at your sin and your failure. Stop that. You need to behold with the eyes of your heart by faith what this verse says. It says it right there, okay? This is the kind of love God has for you, that he wants you to be his child in his family. See what kind of love. If you go to the store and there's a cashier there and you're short a few pennies and the cashier gives it to you out of his own wallet, that's a little bit of love. Great. It costs that cashier a little bit of his own money. Or if you're wanting to go to college and you don't have the funds and some wealthy patroness somewhere has invested thousands of dollars to send you off to college in a scholarship, that's more love because there's more commitment of her own resources. But what you have here with God is neither of those. You have God as a father toward a son or daughter, which simply means you have all the resources of God. Because a good father cares about all the children in his neighborhood, certainly. But he cares about his own children in a unique way. For all the children in the neighborhood, he'll help them out a little bit. But for his own children, and this is right, for his own children, all of his resources are in play. Whatever is required. If medical bills stack up to keep that child healthy or alive, he will happily pay the medical bills the rest of his life. Because he is a father, loving, providing for his child. And he says, see what kind of love the father has given to you. He's not a patron paying for you to have a blessed life. Instead, he's brought you into his own bosom. And when the trials of life are there, which they always are, he says, I'm going to walk with you through the trials. I'm going to give you all the grace you need for every single one of them. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to provide you the comfort that's required. When you need people in your life, I'm going to put the people into your life. When you need to be encouraged by the scriptures, I'm going to encourage you by the scriptures. I'm going to lead you across the narrow river of death itself with all of the trial that it is. And I'm going to bring you into paradise to be with me forever. What kind of love the Father has given to you that you should be called and that you should be a child of God so that verse 2 can start, Beloved, you are God's child now. We know that we have God's fatherly love, all of his resources, all of his commitment for our good forever because he already gave the greatest jewel in his treasury for our good. He already sent his own beloved son into the world to die upon a cross that you might be brought into his family. And there's nothing more that he could sacrifice. There's nothing above that. That's why we can say with Romans chapter 8, he who did not spare his own son in a unique sense, but gave him up for us all as his sons and daughters, how will he not also with him graciously give us all Things like a father giving everything the child needs. A father doesn't give to the child everything the child asks. 
The child would have lots of cavities. The father gives to the child everything the child needs. A good father does. God is a good, good father. As we've said, he is first the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus has opened wide the doors to the family home and welcomed us in as brothers and sisters through his work on Calvary so that he can be the firstborn born among many brothers and sisters. That's us. Jesus' prayer was that the Father would love us with the love with which he loves his own eternal son. So you might feel lonely today. Some of you do. Some of you feel very lonely today. You feel like you're not really connected with anyone. Maybe it's circumstances of life, or you've got a lot of people and you just don't feel connected to them. You may feel lonely today, then you need to obey 1 John 3.1. See what kind of love the Father has given to you. That He's made you His own child. You're not alone. You may be lonely. You're not alone. He's your Father and He cares for you. You may not have had a good earthly father and you regret that loss. Then you need to obey this command. See what kind of love your heavenly father's given to you. He's the best father there is and he's yours. You might be afraid. You've got some trials coming up. You don't know how things are going to turn out. It's hard to think about anything else. See what kind of love the Father has given to you. Sometimes you need to develop just the Christian hardiness and muscle to take all the anxieties you have, push them to a side, and focus upon God Himself as your Father and rest in His love. I hope you are able to do that. You might feel abandoned and betrayed by other people. And if you live long enough, sometime you will. Then obey the command to consider the love that God has for you. What kind of love is it? It's not a love that's here today and gone tomorrow. It is what an ideal family love would be. It's not always ideal in this world, but ideally it is a safe place in the home where you know the parents love the children unconditionally and provide a safe environment for them. Although that doesn't always turn out in this world, The ideal is ideal. If God is your father, then you already have the most important relationship, the one who owns the cattle on the thousand hills and has your best interests in mind, and he's committed to you with all of his resources as his child, and it's never going to change. See, see that. Do you see that? See that. See that kind of love. Behold God's love. So that is the command here in verse 1. And that leads us then to the rest of this passage. Because the rest of this passage is just a consequence. If we're really God's children, then certain things will follow. And the main one here is there will be a family likeness. So we saw God's love. Now let's see the likeness to God that all children of God have. You can see the likeness both now. There's a likeness now if you're God's child, but there's also a likeness later. The likeness now is in the rest of verse 1. He says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. This is likely talking about the him 
is likely now talking about Jesus. You wish John would have done us a favor and made that clear, but he goes back and forth when he says he or him. Sometimes it's the father, sometimes it's the son, and you have to read the context and figure out. I'll explain why I think it's the son in a second. The main point here, though, is that the world did not recognize Jesus, who is in the image of God, so they didn't recognize Jesus, the Son of God. Don't expect them to recognize you because you look like him. You get that? You see why that's in there? Because you look like Jesus. There's a family resemblance there. And if the world then doesn't know or recognize Jesus as God, they don't see God in Jesus. They're not going to see God dwelling in you by his Spirit. They're not going to see the family resemblance in you. They won't recognize that either because you look the same. Now, here's where this analogy we've been using of children looking like their parents sort of breaks down because as we've said, when you trust in Jesus, you are adopted into the family of God. Now, human adoption works in such a way that when you're adopted by a family, you don't then share their genetic information. You don't then look like them, maybe by nurture, but not naturally. You still look like your biological parents, but it is not that way when you enter the family of God. Because not only are you adopted as an orphan into his family, but your very person, who you are, changes. That is why Jesus calls it a second birth. It's not just that you're still who you are, nothing really changes about you, but now you're in a different relationship with God. No, if you're in a new relationship with God as a child, you have changed on the most fundamental level. When Jesus tried to explain this to Nicodemus, he did not understand. So if it's hard to get in your mind, don't worry, he didn't get it either. And you remember he said, how can a man be born when he's old? (laughs) Jesus said, you have to be born two times. How is that possible? But Jesus stood firm on that and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Your first birth from your biological parents, you were born fallen in sin. You were born of the flesh, you are flesh. But that which is born of the Spirit a second time is spirit, or we could say spiritual In other words, Jesus did not come to settle for you adding him onto your life. Instead, if you want to be a part of the family of God, it's going to change everything about your life. It's a new birth. The old goes away. There's something new that comes. It's not just that you're adopted and you maintain whatever you looked like before, but that's where the analogy breaks down because when you're adopted into God's family, you change on a fundamental level so that you look like God. God. John is right in verse 2, beloved, we are God's children now. That means that in the present, all of you in this room who've truly trusted in Christ, even though it's invisible, you really have on a fundamental level completely changed. Your most essential principle, what drives you beyond everything else has changed. You might still physically look the same. We're not talking about that. We're talking about who you really are at your heart or your core. There is a fundamental change so significant that Jesus compares it to being born again afresh. You become a child of God. There is a change that makes you look like God. 
There is a likeness even now if you're a child of God. And of course, that's obvious. I hardly have to tell you that because you know how that works with parents and children. So you should look like your father. It's interesting because our culture at present, you're aware, is very interested in the idea of personal remaking or personal transformation. Only our culture right now is focusing that upon gender. That we could be born a first time with a particular gender, but then almost in a sense be born a second time anew with a different gender. Well, God doesn't allow that because he's the one who chooses our gender, so we remain with the gender that he chooses for us. But you see, that's just splashing in puddles because there is a personal transformation that God not only allows but encourages, and it is on a way more fundamental level even than that of gender. It is your very nature. God doesn't allow you to change your gender, but he allows you to change you, who you are at essence. Becoming a child of God, being born anew, the old passes away, new things come, different desires, different behaviors. You look different, you think different, you're different. So you can change in the way that God has decided, very fundamentally. That's why scripture says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You're not the old creation with some new things tacked on, like a house remodel, it's not you. You're a new creation. We demoed the whole thing and built something new. The old has passed away. The new has come. You could see this in verse 29 last week, if you look there, right before. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God because God's righteous. So there you were before not practicing righteousness. You were born of a righteous father, and now you look like him because you practice righteousness. There's a family resemblance. And now we see a consequence of that fundamental change in you. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Him being Jesus, who perfectly resembles God. John 1.10 says that He was in the world, the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. And here John seems to be writing about Him again. The world didn't know Him, didn't recognize Him. Therefore, he says, look, you look like Jesus now. If you didn't look like Jesus, if you looked like the devil and he was your father, which is true of us before we know Christ, if that were true, the world would recognize you, would say, ah, a brother, come here, come here. But as soon as you're born again now, the world does not recognize you. Who are you? The world crucified Jesus and the world wants to crucify us. What the world sees in us as believers, true believers, they see ignorance in us. And to be fair, there is some ignorance left in us. They see ignorance in us. They see a political voting block in us. Some of that's true, some not. They see a backwardness in us. Christians, they're so backward. They're so behind the times. What they don't see in you is God. They don't recognize the family resemblance that you're being remade after his image. They can't see it, but that's okay. Jesus himself said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. The reason the world, he says, the reason the world is hostile toward you by default, the reason culture itself as it moves, moves in a hostile direction against you, it's not just politics, okay? There is a lot more. It is because if you're truly born again, you look like Jesus 
the image of God. And the world, that makes no sense to the world. No sense whatsoever. Your craving after moral purity and holiness, a standard of holiness, the world considers puritanical, stodgy, and fun-killing, the world does not understand. If the culture despises you for righteousness' sake, or as Jesus said, if they persecute you for the sake of righteousness, rejoice. It's really one of the only ways you can, I shouldn't say that, it's one of the most helpful ways for you to know that you really are a child of God. Jesus said, beware when everyone speaks well of you. But if the culture, and I'm not talking about good believers think you're all way off base, then you might need to think about, am I off base? What I'm talking about is the world at large, unbelievers who reject everything here. They don't like what they see in you? Good. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. They didn't like what they saw in Jesus. They cried, crucify, crucify him, and they cry them to you as well. So rejoice. It's proof that you've put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness, as Ephesians 4 says. So you are even now a child of God. Rest in that, but also know that if that's true, you should see, even now, a likeness to God. Not in your power, not in any of that. In your moral purity, in your love for holiness, in your love for the people who sit around you today, in your willingness to sacrifice for others, in your high standards of personal morality, in your commitment to your word, etc., etc. You should not look like the world. The world should look at you and be puzzled because you look like God, your Father. So that's true of you now, but that leads us in this passage to what will be true of you later. Because you may be saying, I think there's a likeness to God in me in the sense of moral purity, but it's so incomplete. John knows that. And therefore, look what he says. He's not assuming you perfectly resemble God in moral perfection. That is not true yet at all. He's going to say that you look like God, but it's like looking at someone and you notice some features you recognize and others you don't. You're confused. Are you part of that family or not? Some I recognize, some I don't. That's what it's like for us right now. It's not a perfect likeness. See verse 2 again. Beloved, we are God's children now, even if you're not perfect. You can be God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He, Jesus, appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. This should begin our second sermon because that certainly deserves a whole sermon on its own, but we're not going to do that, so I'll give you what we can. That verse right there is the Christian hope. And you see that even in the next verse. In verse 3, he talks about everyone who thus hopes in him, the ESV has. Literally, it says, everyone who having this hope. He's talking about a hope. And it is the only time that John, in his gospel or any of his letters, ever uses the word hope. Surprisingly. But he uses it in reference to verse 2. He says, that is your Christian hope. It's everything you're living for. And what is it? 
that when Jesus Christ appears in the future, when he returns, we will be like him all the way because we shall see him as he is. And you might think that doesn't seem significant to see him as he is because didn't his disciples see him as he is and then they all forsook him? Didn't the crowds crying, crucify him, crucify him, didn't they see Jesus as he is? Didn't Judas sit across the table from Jesus and see him as he is and still went out and betrayed him? So how is it that seeing him would change us to be completely like him in the image of God? How would it perfect the family resemblance to see Jesus if so many people saw him? And even when he returns, many unbelievers will see Jesus as he judges them, for he will judge the whole earth, and they will not be transformed to be like him. So what's being said here that later on, your likeness to God will be perfected. You will be like Jesus, who is God in the flesh, because you'll see him. I really think that the secret lies in that phrase, as he is. When Jesus was on earth, he veiled his glory. And in some sense, every time Jesus revealed himself to anyone, even after his time on earth, like to Paul, for example, there was always a revealing of his glory because Jesus is a perfect reflection of the glory of God. And you remember that God had said to Moses on the Mount, Mount Sinai, he'd said, if I showed you who I really am, then you die. So we can all thank God that he's never done that for us. If we were to see Jesus' glory completely at any time, you simply would die. So Jesus, in interacting with people, has always veiled his glory. There is in his face the glory of God, but it's veiled. He lifts the veil at times and gives a peek. We saw this in his human life most clearly on the Mount of Transfiguration. If you remember, he went up on the mountain. John was one of the three of his disciples who went with him up on a mountain during his earthly life. Matthew 17, 2 says, And Jesus was transfigured before them. And his face, so he's lifting the veil just a little to show his glory. And it says, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Young people don't look at the sun, okay? But if you ever tried to look at the sun, it's hard. <laughs> it's very hard to do. Don't do it, okay? And it said that Jesus' face, when he just lifted the veil a little bit, a peek at his glory, of his glory as he is, it's like the sun. Suddenly, from his face emanating on this dark mountain to these three persons, and certainly John could probably remember that event, they fell as if they were dead on the ground, terrified by what was happening. They were stunned. It says Peter spoke, but he didn't know what he was saying. He was just so stunned by this bright light from the face of Christ. Christ has never revealed fully his essence as God to any person because you'd be dead. And even when he just lifts the veil a little bit to show that he's not just a man like us, but he's actually God, even when he did that just a little at the transfiguration, it was like the sun. When he did it to Paul on his way to Damascus, when he was still Saul, he lifts the glory a little bit. And what happens to Saul? Blinded. He can't see. <laughs> he didn't die, but he can't see. So what waits for us when Jesus returns is a greater lifting of the veil 
than you or I can currently imagine. You think you can imagine it? No. It's not entered into the heart of man, what God's prepared for us. You might think, oh, what's so exciting about that? Just like very bright, I'm going to have to squint and like cover my eyes. No. It's not just the physical brightness we're talking about here. When Jesus returns to show himself as he is to us, we'll probably include that, but it will be more than that. It will be him displaying for us a greater vision, a greater realization of the glory of the almighty, infinite, and eternal God than humans have ever had. Job said, we have seen only the fringes of his ways when describing some of his most majestic creations on earth. These are just an echo, faint. And when Jesus reveals the glory of God in his face, more than we have ever seen it before, you will realize that here we are on earth chasing after all of these very small ambitious ambitions and interests, playing around with sins that are tempting and enticing, trying to go up the ladder at work, whatever it is, raising perfect children, some good, some bad things, fine. But those things that have really preoccupied us, when you see Christ reveal his glory more than you've seen it before, it's at that moment you're really going to realize, you know what? I wasn't made for all that stuff. (laughs) It never really satisfied that much. I was made to see this. For 2,000 years, Christians have contemplated this and have called it the beatific vision, the vision that makes you happy. (laughs) That's a very blunt way to put it. The vision that makes you flourish, that blesses you, the vision for which you were created, a perception of God that you were created for. So powerful that there is no way for you to stand there and see it without you being completely transformed to a perfect moral purity. Whatever there is of sin or dross that remains, when you see Christ fully, it just burns away as before a blazing heat. He says, you'll be like him. Your transformation into holiness will be complete. You'll be perfectly resembling God in moral perfection. And it's going to be because you see Jesus as he is. We will see in the face of Christ the glory of God. I don't think, I'm almost certain, I probably am certain, that you're not going to see all of God's essence. Because even if you're immortal and you won't die now to see God's glory, ready to see it, you're still finite, you're still limited. And God is not limited. He is infinite. I don't think that we as finite beings ever can comprehend all of God's fullness. It's most likely we'll go on learning about God and His glories, even when He's there with us in Christ, lifting the veil for us. But we'll have such a sight of Him at that time. You could almost call it a third birth. (laughs) Not to name it something weird, but it's like you were born the first time. That was rather remarkable. There you are. You're a person. Wow. You weren't, and now you are. And then you were before, before you're conceived. Okay, let's make this very clear. Before conception, you were not a person, okay? Then you were at conception. Then you're born the first time, and here you are. You were not outside the womb, now you are. Wow, that's a remarkable change. You come to Christ, second birth, that's a remarkable change. Now you look more like God in your morality. And then 
there's another change still waiting for us, the completion of our second birth, where we will be like him because we'll see him as, we, as he is, sort of a third birth. We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You'll keep your personality, don't worry. We'll still be distinguishable. We're not like a clone army. We're not all just identical to each other now. and We look just like Jesus. You're going to keep your personality. You're still going to be you. But everything about you right now that shouldn't be about you, you know those things? They're gone when Christ returns. You'll be, as someone has put it, more you than you've ever been when Christ returns. Because at this point, the things about you that drive your spouse crazy and other people see in you, and sometimes you see in yourself and they're so frustrating, remnants of the old man that are still there that you're fighting with, your temper that gets the best of you and how you don't look away as quick as you should at times and how you indulge certain sins when you shouldn't, those things that weigh upon you, those aren't, those are you. I'm not clearing your guilt, that's you doing that. But it's not who you were intended to be. It's not who God is making you to be. And all of those go away, poof, when Christ returns. And you bear a perfect moral resemblance to God. And you will finally be the real you, if you want to put it that way, who you were intended to be, with your personality, but changed. Heaven will be a wonderful place and the new earth for that reason. Everyone who looks at you on that day will immediately, with no question, see your family resemblance. They'll say, whoa, are you God the Father's son? Are you God the Father's daughter? The resemblance is uncanny. <laughs> are you Christ's brother? You're Christ's sister. Of the heavenly Zion, it shall be said in the words of Psalm 87, this one and that one were born in her. We will look like people born in heavenly Zion. Beloved, you are God's children now. You look like Him now. But if you're dissatisfied with how much you don't look like Him now, don't worry. You will see Christ. He will reveal God's glory, and you'll be just like Him. That leads us to the conclusion of this sermon and the conclusion of John's text. You'll notice we hadn't touched really here at the end of verse 3. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. John is simply concluding in this way, if what I've just presented of seeing God's glory has in any sense given you an idea of the grandeurs that await you, the greatness yet ahead of you in your life, if you have been taken up by the Spirit, so to speak, into the third heaven to see unspeakable things, if you have any perception of the glories of fully experiencing the presence of God and God's love completely passed on to you with no hindrance of a future paradise forever that gets better and better, as C.S. Lewis said, further up and further in, only increasing glories. And if you have any sense of that at all, then don't go home and treat your children like trash. You can't do it. Don't do it. You see how they don't go together. If you have any sense that God has destined you for this grandeur, to see His glory, to be perfected morally, to be like Him, then right now, don't let your temper get the best of you. Don't live that low sort of animalistic life. 
You are meant for bigger things than this. This isn't some kind of empty motivational speech. I hope you see it here in the text. If your hope is on Jesus and it's there because you can't wait to see the glory of God in the face of Christ so that you can be done with those old habits of sin that you're so tired of, if that's true, we should see that in your life right now. You're going to purify yourself. You're going to kill your sin even now. Because you are longing to be pure as He is pure. You're longing for that day. That is the Christian hope. You can't say you have a Christian hope to finally be free of sin and then all week long just throw yourself into it and swim through those oceans of sin with delight. You can't do that. Not if you're a child of God. Because as Paul said, it's even now that we, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being, are being, see present, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. So, with our hopes fixed on that, let us all leave here and prove the maxim true, like father, like son, like father, like daughter. Let's pray. God, our Father, we crave to be like you, and I can speak for myself, but probably for all of my brothers and sisters in here, that we really are so weary of our own remaining sin. As much as we hate it in each other because it's inconvenient, I hate it the most in me and want to be done with it. Lord, this is a holy longing that you have put in us because we have your seed in us and we are your children and you yourself abide in us. And we are being remade, but we're not perfected yet. So please help us as we see the glory of your love for us to be energized, to renew our efforts in killing our people-pleasing, in putting to death evil sexual temptation, in crushing unkindness and mean-spiritedness, in destroying selfishness, in putting away all variations of pride and egotism. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to fix our hope on a temporary future of earthly success. If that happens or doesn't, we don't care. Lord, what our hope is, is that when Christ returns, we will be transformed and fully realize the purpose of our creation and behold your glory fully. And having this hope, Lord, grant us by your Spirit to purify ourselves, to put off sin, and to live good, godly, holy lives resting in your love. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.